It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I am here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now for a conversation we are very excited about having. Dr. Thomas Fisher um, is an ER doc in the south side of Chicago, and he has a new book called The Emergency, A Year of Healing and Heartbreak in a Chicago ER. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. How are you doing? Doing great. It's really nice to be with you both this morning. Thanks for inviting me. Good morning. I mean, absolutely. This is this is this is a story that needs to be told. It, it feels like it feels like we're we're living in this space where everybody is using the phrase "we need to live with COVID," and that means like that's shorthand for we just need to ignore COVID. And yeah. <laughs> and, and and I want I, I just want to let you talk to our listeners about what you have seen and experienced over the last couple of years and why that um, that doesn't work. I mean, I wish we were beyond it, um, but it's very easy to go back to, you know, January of 2020 when I, I recall and I write in the book about how I was watching on social media how COVID was emerging in China and started its march across the world and just felt this trepidation that, oh, this may or may not be a pandemic, but when there is one, it's going to look just like this. Wow. And then slowly but surely it started coming. I, I don't know if you guys recall when the news started picking up what was going on in Italy and how yep. mm -hmm. um, Europe was closed down and they had all these um, images of people indoors looking out windows in Italy as their hospitals filled. I just sort of felt like at some point that's gonna be our hospitals and I need to start getting ready. And it so it, um, it was such a, um, kind of a challenging time because for much of my practice, you know, I've been working in an emergency department on the south side of Chicago for 20 years. We are, me and my colleagues, my nurses, the nurses I work with, the techs I work with, everybody, we see life and death situations. But at the end of the day, we go home, right? We, we do the best we can. We often carry it with us, but we are not at risk. And for the first time, I realized we're going to be at risk when this actually comes. And it just transformed the way I looked at healthcare and, and the way we practice in those times. I mean, one of the things I think a lot about is um, this denialism that we seem to be in, not in this moment, not just in this moment, but going back to the beginning and all the way throughout, um, which is that even though we're sort of walking around and we're like, we don't need, I don't need a mask. Like, it's fine. We're just, you know, COVID is not, COVID's not real or it'll disappear to quote the president um, and Jared Kushner or, um, you know, now people are saying we don't need masks because we're in an endemic state, um, mm -hmm. skipping over epidemic. Um, but one of the things that I always think about is that that's not true for the hospitals. So while the numbers have gone down, right, so we're not at the height of the Omicron surge or the Delta surge or the Alpha surge, but like even though the numbers on a chart go down uh, on a graph, um, that doesn't necessarily make like your life easier, right? I mean, like it's still, mm -hmm. when we're talking about 1300 people dying a day or 1500 people dying a day, that means that the hospital is full. That's not like, that's a lot of people dying from one specific disease every single day. Um, 
talk yeah. a bit about throughout the course of this pandemic, like what is it like in that inside of the ER? We've seen certainly, um, you know, some interviews throughout news reporters are trying to um, give us that. But I, I, I want to get it from you, too, because I just feel like we're forgetting that, you know, as we want to go out to eat or go to the game or whatever, we're forgetting that the people that are trying to keep everyone alive who contract this virus, like their lives have, they're definitely not back to any new normal um, inside of these ERs. I mean, I think that that's just such an important point. And as somebody who's been close to it for so long, it's really impossible to unsee what we've seen. Um, The fact is we still wear N95s and, and protect our face when we're taking care of sick people, because we can't always know if they're carrying um, COVID. We, we've seen our friends and colleagues fall sick and miss days and some of them not returning to work. Um, and we've also seen those periods where the emergency department is so full that we have nowhere to put sick people because we're just deluged by folks who have been infected, not to mention the baseline illness that exists in our community. Those folks still need care. And you know, one of the things that we saw at the beginning was in our normal practice, we have a choreography between us about how we care for patients. When people are short of breath, we have, you know, specific tools and medications and non-invasive pressure ventilation and nebulizer treatments to help people breathe. But everything had to be rejiggered in order to make sure that we not only keep the patient we're caring for safe, but all of the rest of the patients in the hospital and in the emergency department safe and protect ourselves. So we had to learn how to put on masks and make sure our eyes were protected and put on gowns. We had to make sure that we had enough negative pressure rooms to care for all of those folks who are short of breath so that people who are in other rooms didn't get exposed to the virus. And we maintain those practices even today because we know that we're not past it. And I think that if more Americans had seen what it was like in those periods, and and we couldn't really expose it, right? You can't have people who are not infected in the hospital. You can't really have, you know, news cameras while we're, you you have to protect people's privacy. But you can't forget the wild eyes of people gasping for breath. Um, you, You can't forget the number of people who need help and, you know, are coming in at the last minute wishing that they had, you know, other alternatives. Um, but people were protected by that. Fortunately, I will say this fortunately, most people who get sick don't get critically sick. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, you know, that doesn't change the fact that a lot of people got sick. We're at a million, we're nearing a million Americans dead since it began. We're still at a thousand people dying a day across the country. You know, it comes in these peaks and troughs. And when we're in one of the troughs, like we're in now, where there are fewer people being infected, the hospital feels sort of normal. But we can't really let our guard down because we right. know sooner or later it'll be back. And of course, you're working on the south side of Chicago, which is a predominantly black area. So can you can we talk a little bit about the racial discrepancy that we've seen in how both the care that Black Americans can receive and the um, and and the 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 increased exposure to that risk of contracting COVID in the first place? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Look. The South Side of Chicago is a storied and historic community. It's where I grew up. Um, 
it is where it is the community that you know birthed Barack Obama and Lorraine Hansberry and Mahalia Jackson. I mean, this is a community that has been black for a very long time. Um, but in the city that's one of the most segregated in the country, it is starved of resources and materials, despite the fact that it pays taxes like everywhere else in the, in the, in the city. And like every other segregated city in America, which is all of them, um, there are health impacts of having fewer protections, fewer goods and services, less safety. Um, in the neighborhood closest to the hospital, in one of the close neighborhoods to the hospital, the number of unemployed in Inglewood reaches 25%, and the number of uninsured is around 12.5%. In contrast to a neighborhood further north in the city of Chicago, the Gold Coast, where the number of uninsured and unemployed is closer to about 25 to 3%. That translates into so many impacts on um, the way the built environment looks and the lived experiences of the individuals within those communities. The, the opportunity for healthy foods and exercising in public and um, avoiding the guns that, and bullets that fly through our neighborhoods, all that translates into about a 30-year life expectancy difference for a man in Inglewood compared to one on the Gold Coast. That translated pretty directly into who was falling ill right at the beginning. If you were not an essential, if you were an essential worker, which mean, meant driving trucks and stocking shelves and delivering, your exposure to the virus was much higher than those who could stay home and work through a screen. Folks at the beginning who were falling ill were mostly Black folks in my community. I mean, one of the one of the stories I remember from the beginning, um, and I, and I, I am, I feel bad in this moment for not remembering this person's name. Um, yeah. But I remember at the beginning, a bus driver in Chicago, a black man um, who he went viral because he posted a video. There was somebody coughing on the bus. Yeah. And mm. he told the person, you know, like put on a mask and the person didn't want to put on a mask. And he's like, this is real. This isn't this is serious. This is life and death. And that man got COVID and he died. And mm. I just remember yeah. that was one of the stories in the very, very beginning where I was just like, oh, my goodness. Um, a whole generation of black America is going to get sick and a lot of them are going to die. Um, and I just can't help but thinking that communities like Chicago, communities like Brooklyn, the Bronx, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, what's, what's lost can never actually be replaced. Um, you know, yeah. you're talking about wisdom and stories and a whole generation of, um, live life, um, lived experiences that are lost, um, you know, to, to the virus. Um, in a community like Chicago, um, we talk a lot about the mm -hmm. social determinants of health. I mean, yeah. you, you just mentioned that, like, the, the life expectancy is 30 years difference, just, you know, yeah. a few minutes up the road. Um, are there any signs that, like, post-COVID, that that will change? That we are doing anything necessary um, to make that different? Because it's not like this is going to be the last pandemic. Uh, climate change is real. That has real health impact, impacts. That's absolutely. Um, on those same communities, marginalized yeah. communities. So do we have any hopeful signs um, that this can be different, that this can change and improve? Well, I'll say the following. Um, 
compared to when I began practicing medicine almost 20 years ago, the vocabulary has changed significantly, which is not the same as action, but it mm -hmm. is a difference in perspective. We actually, I mean, the term social determinants entered the lexicon just in the past few years. And before mm -hmm. we were talking about all of these non-clinical inputs into our health that were sort of nebulous and boggy and we didn't really have targets. Um, we were using terms like health disparities as opposed to really nailing down that this is unjust. People are mm -hmm. people and everybody deserves the same health and health outcomes across the nation. I, I do think that with that change in vocabulary and now 20 plus years of perspective presents the opportunity to really look honestly about how these things are produced. You know, in 2003, the Institute of Medicine produced a tome called, you know, um, that outlined health disparities. I think it was, if I remember, it was called Unequal Treatment. And it was like a really thick 270 something page book that described how um, based on your race, your health status and your health outcome when you get health care looked so different and precious little has changed since then and not due to lack of effort there's been a number of pilot programs here and there across the country that actually work but our willingness and ability to tackle this cohesively as a country have been left wanting um, the biggest step has been the affordable care act which provided a whole lot of insurance for a lot of people through Medicaid and the expansion of the insurance marketplace for people who previously couldn't get anything. But now we also need to build brand new things to serve people differently. Um, and I'm hopeful that that will change in the next few years. But if I'm being honest, we have a society that's structured by racial caste and decisions that elevate profit over people. And I don't think that healthcare is separate from those structures. And until we are honest at staring at those things and tackling those challenges, it's going to be hard to make headway. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about a, a little bit of breaking news that happened while we were, uh, while we were having our discussion, which is that Moderna is now saying that their COVID-19 vaccine generates a strong immune response for young children, which of course mm. is one of, one of the, the, the last pieces of the, how do we fight this puzzle that is just completely unfilled. Yeah. So can, can you talk a little bit about kids and COVID and, and what you have seen and maybe what, what, what is the news of, of a, a possible uh, vaccine mean? I mean, I think that's really optimistic. I've got two young nieces that are both under five and so ineligible for vaccination at this point. And, you know, my sister and brother-in-law are just terrified. Like, well, yeah. what do they do in daycare, in daycare and in their uh, preschool programs? Um, you know, kids are notoriously contagious. You know, they're little Petri dishes that are always oh, getting yeah. from another infected. <laughs> So if it breaks loose in preschool, that means our whole family is infected. And so, you know, here's, I am a big believer in the safety and efficacy of vaccinations. And while I haven't seen the data here, um, I will peruse it and rely on the evidence to direct our decisions. And, you know, once you get the under five vaccinated, that frees up so much and helps us um, tackle these, uh, tackle this pandemic moving forward. The upside is um, 
the science is advancing quickly and we know that high quality masks do help. But man, have you ever seen a three-year-old even yes, keep on seriously. mittens? <laughs> I, th I thought it was hilarious when we were like, we're going to just put masks on all the little babies. And I'm like, good luck yeah. with that. They're going to like have snot everywhere. It's just going to be like snot all, all in the mask on the outside, inside. I mean, have you ever seen a child? Um, the the other, I mean, like literally one of the scientific things that I've I learned in my life, which is a weird, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but like, is it true that like, little, so you put your, you put everything in your mouth when you're a baby. And yeah. like through that, you gain certain immunity to certain viruses because when you're a baby, because you put everything in your you're mouth. Just some dirt. Um, anyway, um, the other <laughs> the other thought I had in, with regards to to the kids, and I've had this from the beginning, um, yeah. is they they always talk about like the pandemic of the unvaccinated. And I was like, yeah, two year olds, like two year olds not vaccinated. Pandemic of unvaccinated people includes two year olds. I mean. How much do you think we should be thinking about the future for those two-year-olds also? Not just like the present, sort of keeping them safe in the present, but keeping them from contracting COVID at all, given the fact that like, I mean, as an emergency physician, I'm sure you see people with acute COVID, but I'm yes. curious if you see people with the long-term effects that we're reading so much about in terms of, you know, long-haul COVID and potentially the impact on kids who catch COVID. Yeah, I haven't, I've, you know, I've seen long COVID mostly in my colleagues who mm. caught it and, you know, have lost some hair or felt fatigued for weeks and weeks and weeks and longer. And I, I think that what's underestimated is that we're all in this together. And yep. so even if a kid gets it and feels better, that kid never sees their grandparents. You know, none of their grandparents might be immunocompromised from fighting off cancer or being a long-term diabetic. I mean, the idea that we're these little individuals who never interact with other people and should never worry about the safety of others just isn't how families, communities, or societies work. We're, we're all in this together. And so we ought to act that way. That means, you know, protecting ourselves and protecting each other. Yeah. yeah. Dr. Thomas Fisher, thank you so much for, um, you know, going above and beyond to help protect all of us. The book is The Emergency, A Year of Healing and Heartbreak in a Chicago ER. Uh, we really appreciate you joining us this morning. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Anytime. Thank you. So thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.